Well, I wanna welcome you to week two of our series, Love Divine, the deity of Jesus in the Gospel of John. But before we get started, I wanna remind you that uh, each week on Tuesday morning, I'm gonna send you a um, email to remind you of the study and give you the links to where you can get the videos. But also there will be an attachment that is the handout for that week. And so I really encourage you to print out that handout because on the handout, is everything that's in this presentation. So you don't have to take a lot of notes. Uh, you can just listen. So all the scriptures that you're gonna see, and there's gonna be a lot of them, are gonna be in that handout. So I, I encourage you just to print it out each week and have it with you as you're watching the video, and it'll make it go a whole lot easier for you. So let's jump into this. Last week, we looked at this idea of Jesus as God. And the whole premise of the book of John is to establish the fact that Jesus is indeed the son of God. He's divine. We saw in verse 34 of chapter one, John the Baptist says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. Um, he was sent before Christ. He was the one to prepare the way for Christ. And he blatantly says, I have seen the son of God. And throughout the book of John, that phrase is gonna be used over and over again to make it very clear that what we're talking about here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. And we're gonna get into that even more in this lesson. So this week, we're gonna take it one step further. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh. He was made flesh. Now, this one should not be controversial for any of us who claim to be followers of Christ. But the sad thing is in the world today, and even within Christianity, this is often debated. And it's been debated from since the time that Jesus Christ rose again and ascended on high. The, the whole idea that Jesus Christ came in human flesh has driven a lot of people crazy. Why? Because it's impossible. Uh, it, it, it's too hard to get their heads around. And so what they do is they take away that aspect of Jesus' identity and they just talk about him as a good man, a moral man, a righteous man, a man who lived a good life, a, a life worthy of emulation. But in John chapter one, verse 14, it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. There it is again, he's from the father. He's the son of God, full of grace and truth. And we'll unpack that in just a second. So we're gonna move from the idea that he's the son of God, but he's the son of God who took on human flesh, which is critical to understanding the gospel of John. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, become flesh. I ran across this quote from Michael Spencer in uh, his book on this topic. And he says this, without the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh, Christianity isn't even a very good story. And most sadly, it means nothing. Be nice to one another is not a message that can give my life meaning. Assure me of love beyond brokenness and break open the dark doors of death with the key of hope. See, if you take away the incarnation, it, it completely denudes the, the whole story of the gospel. It, it robs it of its glory. It robs it of its power. It robs it of its essence. And it robs us of hope because Jesus Christ became human flesh. And that's what we're gonna talk about in this lesson. So we're gonna go back to chapter one, to the very first verse of chapter one, where John writes, in the beginning was the word. That's a reference to Christ, the logos. He's the word, the, the proclamation of God, the revelation of God. 
And it says, and the word was with God and the word was God. So he's the word. But it says that he's with God and was God. He's divine. He's not just a good man. He's not just a moral teacher. He is God in human flesh, the son of God in human flesh. And, and this phrase in the beginning is one that, that John particularly liked. Uh, he, he uses it here and he also uses it in his first letter in 1 John. He says this, that which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, which we have heard. In other words, he was one of the disciples. He heard him speak, which we have seen with our eyes. He was an eyewitness to Jesus, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He walked with them. He talked with them. He ate meals with him. He was a close friend of him. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, as we talked about last week. Concerning the word of life, which takes us back to the very first verse of the gospel of John, the life was made manifest. It was revealed. It, it was made known where we could see it. And we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and it was made manifest to us. So here he is once again in his first letter. He says, I saw him. I spent time with him. I talked with him. And he was the son of God, the son of the father who was made manifest. He was made known. Well, how was he made known? It wasn't a vision. And there are those who believe that Jesus Christ was just a vision in human form. In other words, he wasn't a real human. He was a phantom. But that's not what the gospel of John and the rest of the gospels or the New Testament teaches. He was a real man. And that's going to be important to understanding what he accomplished. Not only is it important, it's critical to what he accomplished. So in the beginning, and this phrase in the beginning takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter one, verse one. And I think John is um, purposely going back to the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, because here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here in the gospel of John, what he's doing is he's establishing the identity of Jesus as the son of God. And he's tying it all the way back to what? the creation of the world, because it goes on in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. Then God said, and catch this, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, this is the, the first verse in the entire Bible that supports the doctrine of the Trinity. God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. In the original language, it, it clearly is in the plural. It's talking about God in the plural. It says, let us our image, our likeness. And it's this picture of the Godhead, the Trinity, participating together in community with the creation of the universe and the creation of man. And Jesus is part of that. See, Jesus is divine. And as we said last week, that's a theme throughout this entire book. It's the reason the subhead of this whole uh, series is called the deity of Jesus in the gospel of John. He is divine. He is God. It says, so God, the Godhead created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here's John starting out his gospel, tying all the way back to the first book of the Bible and that creation narrative. So he goes on in chapter one, he says, all things were made through him, made through who? Jesus Christ, the son of God. And without him was not anything made that was made. So two things, 
Everything was made by him. And then he supports it by saying in another way, and there was nothing that was made that was not made by him. Why is that important? Well, again, what John's trying to do in this gospel is support and prove the fact that Jesus is the son of God. He's not, again, just a teacher, a rabbi, uh, a miracle worker. He's not just a human being who has divine power given to him by God. He is God who's taken on human flesh. And once again, that's gonna be essential to understanding everything that Jesus says, everything that he does, all the way up to his death on the cross. So if we skip forward to verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh. Here he is again, supporting that premise. Jesus Christ, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, he became flesh. Now, again, that's difficult for us to understand. We can't get our human brains around that. How could God, a spiritual being, take on humanity? And how could they coexist? And it's something that's been debated and studied and written about for centuries. But it is a core doctrine of the Orthodox Church, the church that holds to the fact that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God because it's critical to our whole faith system that he be the Son of God who took on human flesh. So what does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ took on flesh? Well, if you Go to the the Latin. When the Bible was uh, translated into Latin, uh, it was translated this way, incarnare. And it it literally means to make flesh. You could say to make meat. And and it literally is these two words, in and then carne or caro, which is flesh. And and it's the same word for carne. Uh, God became flesh. And that's amazing, right? That's, That's incredible that God would do that. But why did he do that? Why was it essential for God to take on human flesh? Well, hopefully we'll, we'll understand that better as we move through this study. See, the doctrine of the incarnation is central to John's gospel, but it's also central to the entire New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's central to the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The idea that Jesus Christ, the son of God, took on human flesh is the core of what we believe, because it is the key to the effectiveness of the cross. Without this doctrine, the cross means nothing. The Messiah is nothing more than a martyr. So it's central. The divinity, which we're talking about, and his humanity, which we're now getting into, are inseparable to John. And they should be inseparable to us. And we should never uh, let anything tear those two things apart in any way, in any form or any fashion. You see, he was 100% God and 100% man. Again, this has been debated. This has been argued uh, for centuries. And this concept, this doctrine is often referred to as the hypostatic union. Uh, I am not even going to begin to attempt to try to explain it to you because it's, it's way above my pay grade. But the fact is the Bible infers and teaches that He was 100% divine God and 100% man. He wasn't God in a skin suit. He wasn't um, God masquerading as a man, 
pretending to be a man. That, that's what Greek mythology taught about the gods, that they would sometimes take on human form, but they were phantoms, they weren't real. That's not what this doctrine teaches. He was 100% God and 100% man. He was the son of God and he was the son of man. And those two phrases are used throughout the Gospel of John and the other Gospels to refer to his humanity and his deity. And they're never pulled apart. They're never separated. He doesn't go back and forth. He's not at one point God and one point man. He is always both combined. 100% God, 100% man. He's of heaven, but he's also of earth. He's from the beginning as John starts out his gospel, but he also, we know from the other gospels, he's born in Bethlehem. He has a physical birth. His mother Mary becomes impregnated by the Holy Spirit and then he is born just like every one of us has been born. Every one of our kids and grandkids have been born. Jesus Christ was from the beginning. In other words, he's eternal, but he also has a birth. Really tough stuff to get your head around, right? But it's essential to what we believe and what John is going to try, going to, try to teach us in this gospel. So he's the son of man and the son of God. His humanity is wildly essential to what? To his mission. He had to come in the flesh. He had to come as a man. He didn't come in, in the glory of heaven. He, he didn't come down on a white horse or on a burning chariot. He, he didn't come down in flames of fire. He didn't come down uh, robed in white. Now he will. And when we studied the book of Revelation, we saw a glimpse of that. But at this Advent, this coming, he came as a man. He, and it, and it, again, it was essential to his mission. So what did he do? He took on human flesh and he became one, one with us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about this, it's, it's difficult for me to understand, but it's really, really important that I comprehend it and that I wrestle with it and that I think about it because of what it means to me and what it means to you. He's one with me, he's one with you, he's become one of us. And I want you to think about that as we move through this lesson and as we move through this series of just what Jesus Christ did for you, that he left glory, he left heaven, he left the companionship of God the Father and he came to earth for me and he came to earth for you. I love what Paul writes in Philippians chapter two. He says, though he, Jesus was God, he didn't think equality of God, something to be clung to, to grasp, to hold on to like a dog with a rag. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form at that birth, he humbled himself in obedience to God. And that obedience, he goes on to say, took him all the way to the cross. Jesus Christ left glory, came to earth, took on human flesh and lived an obedient life all the way to the point of dying on the cross in my place and in your place. Even though he was God, even though he was divine, he didn't cling to that. He didn't hold on to that. He didn't say, no, Father, I'm not going to do that. I don't have to do that. I'm God. I'm your son. I'm too good for that. 
I'm not gonna lower myself to that standard. No, he did it and he did it willingly as we'll find out. I, I love this uh, quote from Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. Listen to what he says, cause it's, it's pretty profound. He says, man's maker, speaking of Jesus, was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. There's a lot crammed into this, this quote here, but he's basically telling you, this is what Jesus Christ did for you and I. He submitted himself to this, to hunger, to thirst, to pain, to sorrow, to beatings, to humiliation, to being called everything from a son of the devil to a blasphemer, to a drunkard. He did it for us. And that's why this is so important. That's why it's so critical for us to study this and to get our heads and our hearts around it. Now, one of the things I wanna encourage you to do is, is I want you to use that devotionary that, that I've given you. If you didn't get a copy of it, we have them printed out and you can get them at the, the three different campuses. It's pretty lengthy, but it's, it's a daily devotional I've done on the book of John. And I want you to read it. It's part of your homework because it goes into greater detail on kind of a verse by verse aspect of the book than I'm gonna do here because I'm gonna be at a little bit higher level looking at some broader concepts. So I encourage you to read that. But, but this idea of him coming in human flesh is essential for me to understand and you to understand. And, and here's the problem that it solved. And we need to understand the problem in order to not only grasp, but appreciate the solution that God came up with. We know from Romans chapter three, verse 23, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that word all in the Greek means all, everybody. Nobody's exempt. Every man and woman, every child ever born, everyone has sinned and therefore fallen short of God's glory, his standard. Uh, we can't live up to his standard. Well, it gets worse. The result of that, the consequences of that is death. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in chapter six, verse 23. So every person who's ever lived, every person ever born has been born into sin, a sinner condemned to death. And now here's the next step in the process. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That's the whole reason for the sacrificial system. That's the reason God established it is that so the people of Israel could have temporary absolution from their sin. They could be uh, forgiven for their sins. But as we'll talk about later, it was never meant to be a permanent forgiveness. It never cleansed them completely of their sins. It was temporary. Because it goes on in Hebrews chapter 10 and tells us it's impossible literally impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to do what? To take away sins. They can't do it. What's built into this passage is the idea that I can't have an animal, be it a, a bull or a goat, die in my place. I, I can't 
have all my sins taken away by the death of an animal. It was meant to be a short-term solution, but it didn't have a long-term aspect to it. And so you look at this, and this is a real problem, right? We've got a problem. And the problem is, I have to die for my own sin. You have to die for your own sin. And here's the other sad part to this. I can't die for you, and you can't die for me. Why? Because I'm a sinner just like you are. I could offer, I, I could offer to die in your place, but it wouldn't do anything to absolve you of your sin and your guilt and your condemnation of death. See, mankind has a problem. Mankind has a sin problem, but they also have a solution problem. They don't have a way to escape the condemnation. So what did God do? God had his son take on humanity. God had his son become human flesh. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. That's why, in other words, this problem that I just presented That's why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you, catch this, you have given me, Christ, a body to offer. You've given me this human body to offer back to you on behalf of humanity. He says, you were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. They were never gonna satisfy you. Then I said, Jesus said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. See, Jesus Christ came to do the will of his father and that's gonna be repeated all throughout the gospel of John, that he's going to do what his father has sent him to do. And what he sent him to do was to take on human flesh, live a sinless life and die a sinner's death on behalf of mankind. That's what he was sent to do. And he did it. He accomplished it. And who did he accomplish it for? Me, you, every person watching this video, everyone who has ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he did it for them. And for all those who have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ. So here Jesus in this passage, he's quoting from Psalm 46 to 8. He's saying that I am the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And that's going to take place. He's going to quote scripture repeatedly in the gospel of John. And he's going to reveal himself as the fulfillment of scripture. But it's also the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, 53 verses four through six. Listen to what this is. This is a messianic passage. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. Whose weaknesses? Ours. Sinful men and women. It was our sorrows that weighed him down the sorrows that are accompanied or that accompany our sin. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his sins, but no. See, Jesus was sinless. Jesus never committed a sin. Jesus was always faithful to God. He was always obedient. And he goes on and says, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And then this verse that you're all familiar with, all of us like sheep have strayed away. Everyone from the most righteous looking and righteous acting person to the most heinous criminal that's ever lived. We've all strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own path, our own desires, our own will, our own way. And he says, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. 
See, why this, this whole idea of the, the humanity of Jesus is so important is that Jesus Christ had to become a man so that he could die for men and women. Remember what we looked at. Bulls and goats weren't gonna cut it. They could shed their blood and they could provide temporary relief from the problem, but only Jesus in human flesh could accomplish it. It was only as a human that he could be beaten, pierced, crushed, whipped. See, they couldn't do that to God if he hadn't taken on humanity. And some of this, you, you may say, I already know this. Ken, why are you going here? I already know this. And you may know this, but you may not fully appreciate it. As I've studied this, this book this summer and dug into it at greater depth than I ever have before, I have been impacted more than ever before by the weight of this concept. It's one that I've grown up with. It's one that I've heard all my life, but it, it's never resonated with me as much as it has over the last six or seven months of, of digging into this, this gospel of John. So Jesus Christ came and he said, I, I've come father with this body to offer you that you've given me. Uh, you've given me this body, this earthly body, this human flesh that I might give it back to you. And first Peter says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, that's essential, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. See, I don't know how you look at these passages and in any way jump to the conclusion that, well, he wasn't really a man. He was just God that looked like a man. No, it's pretty clear. He had to die physically. He had to suffer. He had to have nails driven through the palms of his hands and the soles of his feet. He had to have a crown of thorns crushed on his head. He had to be whipped. He had to be beaten relentlessly in order to fulfill scripture, but also to fulfill the requirement that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, there's no forgiveness. And that he would do that for me literally blows me away. Hebrews goes on and says, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Don't skip over that word perfect. It goes with never sinned. See, there's no man, no woman that's ever lived that's ever been able to not sin. We're born into sin. We're born with a sin nature. And yet here Jesus Christ lived his life without sin. He never sinned. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was blameless. And no one else can claim that. No one else can accomplish that. That's why no one else can die for you. I can't die for you. You can't die for me. Only Jesus Christ could die in the place of sinful man. So he goes on in verse 14. He says, and the word became flesh, dwelt among us. He became one with us. But why is that significant? Again, why is his incarnation, his coming to dwell among us so important? This is pretty fascinating. The, the word here is skanao, and it literally means to tent, uh, to tabernacle is how it's often translated. He, he came and he tabernacled with us in this tent, this human body. 
it's the idea of to reside. It's the same uh, concept of God residing in the tabernacle in, in the days of the Exodus and residing in the temple later on. Jesus Christ came and he resided in a body. He tented in a body. He took on human flesh. And what's interesting is it's from the same root word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 1. Listen to what he says. For we know that when this earthly tent, same root word, that we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. So it's this idea that Jesus Christ not only came to dwell with us, but he dwelt in a tent like you and I have. He, he came and dwelt in a body just like you and I have with the same problems our bodies have. He got tired, he got hungry, he grew weary, he wept, he had pain, he bled, he had to sleep. He tabernacled, he, he tented in this human body and encamped with us. And it's this idea that in the Old Testament, particularly with a tabernacle, God came and dwelt with men. He dwelt within the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. And now we're seeing in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God in a human body, a tent. See, he's replaced the tabernacle. And we're gonna see as we move through the book of John that he replaces the temple. And you're gonna see a growing conflict between the temple worshiped by the Jews, glorified by the Jews, and the temple of God. Jesus Christ. We see in Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle no longer existed. The tabernacle wasn't necessary. Now God dwelt in a tent, a tabernacle made of human flesh. And he came to bring the glory of God and make it manifest, to make it visible to mankind. I love what he says in verse 17. He says, for the law, and he's gonna tie the law and grace together here, which is essential to understanding the gospels. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, what's he talking about? Well, until Jesus Christ came, the, the one way that men could try to gain favor with God was through the law. But here's what Romans tells us. As Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, he says, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. In other words, the law was given, but nobody could keep the law. Nobody could adhere to all the rules, all the standards, all the righteous decrees that God had given. They could try, but they would fail, which is why the sacrificial system had to be given because they did fail relentlessly, religiously, and repeatedly. So God did what the law could not do. This is important. He sent his own son in a body. What kind of body? A body just like ours that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law, in other words, God gave the law and the law is holy and just and righteous because it's a reflection of the holiness of God that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled and satisfied through him. He would be the only man who could come and keep the law. He would be the only one who could live according to the law perfectly. 
and had no need for anyone to die on his behalf. Why? Because he had no sin. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was blameless. So he fulfilled the law, which is what Romans 3.20 says. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us what? Just how sinful we are. It's the same concept as a uh, um, mile per per hour sign, a speed limit sign. It can't make me go slower. It can't make me go faster. It tells me what the law requires. And then I have to make a decision whether I'm going to obey or not. And typically I disobey. And then I justify my disobeyment. But see here, we're being told that the law can't save. The law can't produce what we want it to produce because we're the problem, not the law. So Paul goes on and says to the Galatians, then why was the law given? If we can't keep it, why did he give it? It's kind of a sick joke, right? No. He says it was given alongside the promise speaking of the coming of Christ, to show people their sins. The law tells me I'm a sinner. The 55 mile per hour speed limit tells me I'm going too fast. I am breaking the law. It can't make me obey it, but it shows me when I'm not. The same thing is true of the law of God. The law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised, Jesus Christ. Notice the emphasis on child coming as a baby, coming in human flesh, being born as a man. See, the law shows us our sin, but only Jesus can truly forgive us of our sin. And he had to come. But listen to what Romans 10, 4 says. Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. The law was given to show men their sin, but it was also to bring glory to God through obedience. And Christ accomplished it. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. See, he accomplished what the law couldn't accomplish because of our sin problem. He kept it. And by virtue of faith in him, we are made right with God, not through the law, but through faith in Christ because Christ kept the law. See, he had to become a man because it was only as a man that he could live according to the law. As God, he always kept the law. He was the creator of the law, the giver of the law. But as a man coming in human flesh, he lived as a man in accordance with and in keeping with the law. I love this from Galatians 4, 4. When the right time came at just the right moment in God's divine plan, God sent a son, born of a woman, there it is again, human flesh, born as an infant in a manger, subject to the law. See, as soon as he took his first breath out of the womb, he was subject to the law. He was required to keep the law. He had to live according to the law and he did it. And he did it perfectly. And that's the whole key to our hope in the cross, in the resurrection and in our future glorification. As the son of God, Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly. And he himself reminds us of what he did and the importance of what he did when he says, don't misunderstand why I came. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses. I didn't come to get rid of it. I didn't come to abolish the writings of the prophets. No, he says, I came to accomplish their purpose. I came to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. See, he came to do what God 
had required mankind to do. What Adam and Eve failed to do, what every man and woman since then has failed to do, live in obedience, live in perfect submission to the will of God. He came to do it. He came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill and accomplish every prophecy made throughout the scriptures from Genesis forward. That's what he came to do. And he did it perfectly. And as a result, what's happened and what's so incredibly important for you and I is that we now live under grace, not law, but grace. Remember, he didn't abolish the law. He just accomplished the law and now has made available to you and I grace. And what, the verse we all love and we all go to and we all hang our hat on is this one. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now here's the key. And this is not your own doing. In other words, you didn't accomplish it. You didn't keep the law. You weren't obedient. It's the gift of God. It's a gift. It's given to you through Jesus Christ. Not a result of your works, not, a, not a, anything you've done, because if it was based on you, you would boast and you would brag and you would get the big head. But see, no, you couldn't accomplish it, so he did it for you. It's grace. See, I don't live under law. I, I don't have to keep a set of rules and a set of standards. I don't have to do a certain amount of quiet time every day or, or pray a certain amount of minutes every day. I don't have to keep God pleased. I live under grace. Now that does not mean I'm free to do whatever I want and live how I want. But I do things for him because he loves me, not to make him love me. And there's a huge difference between those two. I don't have to work to get God to love me. I don't have to score brownie points with God. I don't have to live up to a certain standard, be it human standard or what I think is a divine standard. I have to place my faith in Christ and then I'm given grace. And I have no reason to boast because it's freely given to me by God. Paul tells the Galatians, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by, by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. Now this is being written by Paul who is a Pharisee before he became a missionary. Before he came to faith in Christ, he was a law-keeping Pharisee, prideful, arrogant, boastful about how righteous he was. And when he came to faith in Christ, he realized just how wrong he had been. See, it's all about Christ, what Christ has done for me, not what I do for God. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But you gotta keep this tied to the fact that he had to become a man. He had to take on human flesh in order for you and I to be made right with God because without it, there's no, no way even now that we can be made right with God. And we're still in that same problem we looked at earlier. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We all deserve death. There's a requirement that blood be sacrificed and the blood of bulls and goats isn't gonna cut it. And I can't die for you and you can't die for me. So that means you have to die for you. If Jesus Christ didn't take on human flesh, you're still stuck in that same place but he did. And that's the beauty, that's the joy of this book. See, if we compare you and I with God, 
God, the God man, Jesus Christ, <coughs> it's pretty clear the difference. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you're from below. He's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. I'm from above. That was not a politically correct thing to say. You're of this world. I'm, a, I'm not of this world. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's telling these religious leaders, these self-righteous men who think they can earn favor with God by the keeping of the law. He's telling them, unless you believe in me, you're gonna die in your sins. They're stuck in that problem. And here's the difference between a man and the God man. One's from below, he's from above. We are of this world. He's from another world. He's from out of this world. He is, he is transcendent. And yet he took on human flesh. We're marked by darkness. We're surrounded by darkness. We're blinded by darkness. And yet he's the light that came to penetrate the darkness. We're sinners. We're born sinners. We come out of the womb sinners. And then we confirm it with our sins as we get older. And yet he's our savior sinless savior. We're slaves to sin. He's a servant of righteousness. He only does the will of his father. And he's going to repeat that statement over and over again in this book. We have a sin nature. He has God's nature. You see why he had to take on human flesh. You see why it's so important that he was the God man, 100% God, 100% man. Because without it, we have no hope. I love this from uh, John the Baptist, chapter one, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He looked at this man and he said, this is the Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God. Did he fully understand everything he was saying? I don't think so. But he clearly understood that Jesus was someone special. Jesus was greater than him. He, he deserved more honor than him. He wanted Jesus to be greater and he wanted to become lesser. But we also know this. He says just a few verses later, he says, I have seen and bore witness that what? This is the son of God. He's the lamb of God. He's the son of God. You see, the key is the son of God came to be the lamb of God. He came, took on human flesh so that he could die for sinful humanity. And that's the essence of this book. It's the essence of the gospel. It's what we believe. He is the son for sinners slain, the lamb of God, sinless, blameless. And yet he died for me and he died for you. So once again, Luke chapter nine, verse 22 says, the son of man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. This is Jesus Christ telling his disciples what was gonna happen to him and they never got it. It never clicked and they wouldn't get it until it was all said and done. And yet he's telling them that I am the son of man. I am God in human flesh and this is what I've come to do. I've come to suffer. I've come to be rejected. I've come to be crucified and to die in your place, but then to be raised from the dead. And what's incredible as you study this book is that it says he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. The Jews rejected him. Yes, some believe, but most rejected him. And he, it says that all who did receive him, those few who did believe in him, they were given 
something great. When they placed their faith in him, they believed in him. He gave them the right to become children of God, something that set them apart from everybody else in the world. But it wouldn't be fully realized until he took on human flesh. He came in order to die. See, most people rejected him. The religious leaders rejected him. Uh, He had many followers, but as things got heated near the end, they rejected him. Judas rejected him. The vast majority of the people rejected him, but some received him. His 11 disciples received him. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and others received him. And they would be given the right to become children of God. But what did they receive? They received substitutionary atonement. That's a big phrase that just simply means he died in their place. He died on their behalf. They believed that he was their sinless sacrifice, that he was there to die on their behalf. He was the propitiation. He was the satisfaction that that satisfied a holy God. He did what God needed to be done in order to have his holiness satisfied. He paid the price we couldn't pay and he paid it with his own life. He was the lamb of God, the lamb for sinners slain for you and I. I love this old hymn from Charles Wesley. He says, the lamb of God for sinners slain to thee I humbly pray. Heal me of my grief and pain. Oh, take my sins away. And that's exactly what he did. But how did he do it? He did it by taking on human flesh and by dying in my place and in your place. So here's your thoughts for the day. And again, if you're in, a, in one of our small groups, I want you to get together with your guys, either virtually or in person, uh, or get together with a friend, get together with your wife, your kids, but talk about these thoughts together. Here they are. Spend some time thinking about the following quote. The incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers until we too have taken the idea of God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it. We have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. See, it's ludicrous to think of God being born as a baby in diapers. But until we take it seriously, as he says, we're gonna never fully appreciate what's been done for us. And then secondly, I want you to consider the fact that Jesus took on human flesh for your sake. He died in your place. And I want you to really wrestle with what should your response be to that? We all know it shouldn't be flippant. We all know it shouldn't be taken for granted. But what should our response be to something as incredible as that? Well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time together. I pray that as we wrestle with these two thoughts, as we struggle with getting our heads and our hearts around this idea of the incarnation and what it means that we would be literally eternally grateful, but that it would start now, that even now living in this world, in this day, in this age, during this difficult time, we would recognize that we have hope because Jesus Christ left his throne in glory, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death on my behalf and on the behalf of every person watching this video so that we might be made right with God. And we thank him for that. Father, we thank you for that because it It was you who sent him and we're grateful. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. We'll see you next week.